Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, where our goal is to listen to the top artists and songs of the last 100 years, starting in 1920 and working our way forward. Four days a week, we review what we hear and share the history of popular music with you, as we do. I'm Richie, and you're listening to Side A of our fourth episode of 1922's music. In today's show, we'll be listening to and reviewing the 1922 works of Al Jolson, Henry Burr, Isham Jones, and John Steele. What was it like in 1922? Well, then-President Warren G. Harding was introducing the first radio into the White House, so you know radio as a communications medium was not well spread, and even more so that radio entertainment wasn't a big draw. The Teapot Dome scandal was well underway, and if you remember what that is, your history teacher would be proud. The Lincoln Memorial was dedicated that year in Washington, D.C., and we were two years into the Roaring Twenties. One of the few artists that would not only thrive in the 20s, but survive their dynamic changes, would be Al Jolson, who was called the greatest entertainer of all time at the peak of his career. Since Al Jolson, Henry Burr, Isham Jones, and John Steele are all artists who we've already introduced in some of our previous episodes, we don't really need to give their entire history here. However, here are three things you need to know about each of them from our last reviews. First, let's look at Al Jolson, who was one of the most influential entertainers of the 20th century without a doubt, and is responsible in no small part for defining how Broadway musicals sound today by inspiring generations of entertainers. At his peak, he was called the greatest entertainer of all time, but he was well known for performing in blackface long after it had fallen from popularity, a choice that would taint his legacy severely. In our first reviews of Jolson, he earned a pitiful 12.7, despite being one of the biggest-selling artists of the year. He continued this below-average performance with a 14.3 in 1921, again despite being one of the best-selling artists of the year. In 1922, he is again one of the best-selling artists of the year, so it'll be interesting to see if he can sustain his upward gains in performance. Henry Burr, born in 1882 New Brunswick, is one of the most prolific recording artists of the acoustic era of music. Burr claimed that he had recorded over 12,000 individual pieces of music throughout his career. It's been reported that Henry Burr is one of the highest selling artists of all time, with more than 240 million records sold throughout his career. If true, that would mean he has sold more records than Taylor Swift, Jay-Z, or Prince at the time of this podcast in 2020. And yet, almost no one today is familiar with his work. Burr scored a 16.7 overall in 1920 when we last reviewed his work, and he came across as a less authentic version of John McCormick, a similar tenor. Whether or not he can redeem himself with today's performance of My Buddy, one of his biggest hits, is left to be seen. Isham Jones was born in 1894 in Colton, Ohio, moved with his family to Saginaw, Michigan when Jones was young, and made his start in Chicago by composing the song We're in the Army Now in 1917. While his 1920 and previous work is interesting, Jones would go on to become one of the most popular band leaders of the early 20th century, especially in the coming years of 1923 and onward, where we'll have a dedicated episode just to him. Though his growth as a musician is easy to hear even starting today. John Steele was born in 1895 New Jersey and packed a lot of variety into his show business run. He performed on Broadway and in London, fought in staged boxing matches, and served as one of Ziegfeld's Follies most popular headliners where he produced the songs we'll be hearing today. In 1921, his wife who was divorcing him said that he was receiving $2,000 a week in income from his singing and performing career. 
adjusted for inflation, that's a salary of around $1.5 million a year. But by 1938, John Steele would be bankrupt. In his last appearance on Cunningham's Law Review, Steele received a disappointing average of 13 overall. So we'll have to see if he can bring some more engaging music to today's efforts. So let's stop talking about the music and start listening. For those of you listening to this podcast through Spotify, there's a version of the episode available to you, which includes all of the music as part of a podcast. So you only have to press play once and everything, including the music, will play on its own. The episodes with built-in music are limited to Spotify, so if you're listening to this episode through a different service or on YouTube and still want to listen along to the music, a playlist of what you're listening to today is on Spotify and is called Cunningham's Law Review 1922-4. You don't need a paid account to access that playlist. You can also find a link to this episode on the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We want to know what you think about our reviews and the music we're hearing, so make sure to join us on the subreddit, leave us an anchor voicemail, or reach out on Twitter at Cunning Review. That's all for side A of episode 1922-4. We'll see you for the reviews after the songs on side B. Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, episode 1922-4, where we're listening to the music of Al Jolson, Henry Burr, Isham Jones, and John Steele. You're now listening to the B-side of this podcast, where we review each of the songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that these songs had. If you'd like to join the conversation, the Cunningham's Law subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd also love to hear from you through an Anchor voicemail or on Twitter at Cunning Review. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music or at least heard something new. In our first song of the day, Al Jolson reminds us that April showers bring May flowers in a surprisingly strange accent that almost seeks to imitate Irish tenor John McCormick. He rolls his R's in a way that he doesn't usually and tries to sing with a bass tone that he doesn't pull off, which makes him harder to understand than he should be. Authenticity, of course, suffers from this experiment in Irish style, and Jolson earns it too. In terms of innovation, Jolson is still sticking to his tried-and-true ballad style of hammy singing in an attempt to convey sincerity, but considering the times, it's reasonable to assume that this was already starting to sound very outdated, and he receives a two there as well. Catchiness is a two because the accent does make you want to stop listening before you've finished, and mastery earns a similar two for those same reasons. Artistic statement is the only high point in Jolson's first song, and though this is a simple statement, the similes and imagery are better than nothing, and the song earns a 3 for a total score of 11 out of 25 points. Toot Toot Tootsie brings a big improvement over April Showers, and this song starts out with a much clearer recording and brighter, more joyful-sounding Jolson for a 3 in authenticity. Innovation-wise, the song is a bit more engaging and features soloing accents and more complex music than most of Jolson's supporting music usually brings and earns a three. The catchiness is much better than in April Showers, and Jolson jazzes up the simple lyrics with his trademark repetition, earning a three. Mastery and artistic statements are similarly threes for a MICA score of 15 out of 25. For a sappy statement sung unconvincingly, Jolson earns a 2 in authenticity and artistic statement on Angel Child. It doesn't get much more simple than saying you're happy and that you have the love of someone you've chased after and are in love with. 
In Jolson's common ballad style, Innovation earns a 2, and the song is of average catchiness earning a 3. But Jolson's voice is not as full as the song demands, and especially in the refrain of Angel Child, he falls a bit flat. The song isn't extraordinarily demanding, and so he earns a 2 there. For 2s across the board except a 3 in catchiness, Jolson earns a total of 11 out of 25 for Angel Child. Al Jolson's low point for the year is definitely Give Me My Mammy, and it's just weird. Why does Jolson miss his mother to this extent? In some of the other songs that we've heard in this topic of schmaltzy infantilizing of the mother-son relationship, John McCormick was able to pull off the sentiment by presenting the longing for his childhood through the eyes of his childhood. But in this, Al Jolson is supposed to be a fully grown man who misses his mother this much. It just doesn't make a lot of sense, and it comes across as hammy and false, not to mention weird, for an authenticity score of one. It's just so bad, it's jarring and distracting. The artistic statement is similarly ham-fisted, and earns a two for portraying the relationship as so over-the-top as to be harmful to its intended message. Catchiness is okay, but slows down in the middle when Jolson starts slowing the lyrics down to a talk, and earns a two. Mastery is similarly a two for the song being overly sentimental to a fault, and the music is neither innovative nor interesting, earning a two in innovation for a Jolson all-time low of nine. In another average Jolson song, at least Cuckoo has somewhat of a cute device with the birds singing to each other. This one is threes across the board, but a two in innovation and authenticity for a total score of 13. Yoo-Hoo, on the other hand, plays as more of a Broadway song since it's as if he's speaking to the audience and it's built around the gimmick of Yoo-Hoo. This song receives the same score as Cuckoo for having a simple device to make a below-average song a little better. The whistling in the middle is interesting, but it doesn't really deepen the song overall for a total score of 13 with threes in all categories except for innovation and authenticity, leaving Jolson with a 12 overall for his 1922 work. In My Buddy, our next artist, Henry Burr, recounts his sense of loss for a close friend, who we can assume was killed in World War I just by the timing of things. It's reasonable to assume that many people lost friends and family members in the war, since it claimed more than 8 million lives worldwide. With that being said, Burr does not come across as incredibly authentic in the song, which is surprising given the source material. But in the end, he sounds like he's thinking more about singing than the lyrics and song, and earns a three. Artistic Statement earns a 4 for the honest depiction of loss, which in the hands of a more competent artist would be more obvious. Catchiness is a 3 despite the song's slow tempo, as it is interesting enough to be engaging, but it doesn't bear repeatedly listening. Mastery is a 3 for the solid, if flattened, emotional expression, and Innovation is a 2 for sticking with the well-established ballad format that essentially leaves it sounding like a dozen other songs. This leaves Henry Burr with a total score of 15. The World is Waiting for Sunrise is a great example of Isham Jones coming up, as his arrangement has a driven percussion through the use of banjo and bass from his saxophone and trombone. The music is playful and interesting and does a great job of presenting the song without lyrics by maintaining the different instruments to play the parts of vocals and avoiding repetition. The violin also sounds sweet and avoids shrillness. The World is Waiting for Sunrise receives a 3 in authenticity, artistic statement, and catchiness, but picks up a 4 in mastery and innovation for a total score of 17 out of 25. For the exact same reasons, My Honey's Love in Arms receives the same score, leaving Isham Jones with an average score for the year of 17. 
The clarinet solo, especially in the beginning, was impressive, and I really enjoyed its playful expressions. Also notable were the folksy violins about two-thirds of the way through the song, which were soft but very distinct in comparison to the more formal ways that everyone but Eck Robertson was playing them so far. Last time we heard from John Steele, he was less than impressive with his underwhelming acting, but he seems to have been practicing, and in our final song, Lady of the Evening, he is much more exciting, with a stronger and more expressive voice, earning a four in authenticity and mastery with his final high note finish. The song was likely meant to be a standard performance piece on vaudeville, since Steele was a performer with Ziegfeld's Follies, but it stands alone well on its own and earns a three in innovation. In terms of statement, the song might be a double entendre in implying that the evening is a calming time lyrically, but leveraging that prostitutes are referred to often as ladies of the night, and implying that they too can make some troubles more distant in the dark. This interpretation earns it a four, especially as that would have been a very risque statement back then. Finally, as a performance piece, this song was never going to be that catchy, but it does manage to transition to recorded format well and earns a three, leaving John Steele with a much improved annual average of 18, beating his 1920 score by a whole five points. And that's all for today's episode. At Cunningham's Law Review, we are thankful for every single person who listens to our podcast, as well as all the hardworking people who made the music that we listen to. Thank you all, sincerely and from the bottom of our hearts. Whether or not you agree with us, we want to know what you think, because Cunningham's Law states that the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer somewhere. So make sure to find the Cunningham's Law subreddit, where we will have a dedicated post for this episode, at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd love to hear from you through an Anchor voicemail, or on Twitter, at Cunning Review. If you leave us an Anchor voicemail that we end up using on the show, we'll review an album of your choice in a special episode, even if it's your own bands. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a review on your favorite podcasting service and follow the podcast on Spotify. And if you don't like it, definitely don't mention that to anybody. Until next time, I've been your host, Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme music is a difficult subject by The Insider, and nobody else works here. 